Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, August the 6th, 2013. 68 years ago on this date, the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. Uh, It was dropped by the U.S. military. Uh, A second bomb followed. That was on Nagasaki. I think that was two days or three days later. I'm forgetting. Yes, I'm forgetting. The Japanese government surrendered, ending World War II, more or less. It was 1945. I was 12. I lived in Southern California then, uh, near San Diego, I lived in a beach town, La Jolla, the beatific, beautiful, yes, the jewel, La Jolla. I was in downtown San Diego on August the 6th, 1945. I was at the movies, of course, always at the movies. When I emerged from the theater, I think I've forgotten the movie again. Yes, I did forget some things. It was afternoon, very bright, sunny afternoon, beautiful day. The sailors were celebrating. Much hoopla. There was a party, yes, right there in the street, 68 years later. I am surprised at how much Americans have forgotten, not just me. uh, And, of course, so many young people uh, simply haven't haven't taken the time to study their history. Yes, study history. Learn your place in time. Okay, World War II, the good war, (laughs) will be the subject for uh, literature, film, poetry, uh, infinite amount. Okay. In particular, I want to focus today on J. Robert Oppenheimer, the scientists at Los Alamos. Oppenheimer was called the father of the bomb. I keep thinking they'll make a feature film about Robert Oppenheimer. Back in the day, uh, there was a TV film about Oppenheimer. It was, um, let's see, 
what was the title of that one? It was called... Oh, it's just called Oppenheimer, right. It starred Sam Waterston. You know Sam Waterston. He's the significant elder, the tough guy in the TV show Newsroom. Uh, you know, a, a progressive news uh, man. Anyway, the article I wrote at the time, the review, was published in a women's newspaper, Plexus. It was published in August of 1982. Back in the day, indeed, yes. At the time, I titled that Oppenheimer, Faust or Fraud. The editors muted, <laughs> muted that. They called it the Oppenheimer Legacy. Now, I looked at the review last night. It is a bit reckless and opinionated. Uh, I was snottier 30 years ago. Anyway, I tended to use expressions like lied through his teeth. I try not to do that anymore. Anyway, there is a new biography out, um, an exhaustive, it's a tome, it's a record of not just the scientific, um, what is that, uh, just the, the history. I, I don't think many people are <laughs> very good on uh, nuclear science. I... I am kind of interested, but most of all, I'm interested in the conflicting ideologies, the personalities of that time. It's always humans, human error, human, what is that, primate grandiosity. Of course, the flashpoint in 1945 was the looming Cold War. Everywhere, these guys were worried about the spread of communism, and Oppenheimer was definitely uh, a red. That's what they thought. Anyway, that's the spin. Uh, now, the questions about who sold out or who sold out whom is a matter of much debate. It seems there was enough fear and ambition and hubris to go around. Let me read you a quote from uh, one of Oppenheimer's friends, uh, part of the tragedy. It's from a book called Oppenheimer, The Story of a Friendship, published in 1966. It's by Hakon Chevalier. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. It's H-A-A-K-O-N Chevalier C-H-E-V-A-L-I-E-R This is the man who was uh, apparently scapegoated, let's say, uh, by Oppenheimer. Uh, this man, uh, after having been, what would you call it, um, Thrown to the Wolves, yes. He writes in his uh, novel, The Man Who Would Be God, published in 1959. He told the story with many of the circumstances changed, he says, uh, with characters wholly invented or greatly disguised. I told the story of an atomic scientist destroyed by his invention. It achieved what I wanted it to achieve, 
which was to show that the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was a tragic error which has plagued the world ever since and that the human instrument through which this was accomplished was one of the most gifted, brilliant, selfless and dedicated of men imbued with a love of humanity that made him almost saintly who was used by the powers for their own purposes and eventually destroyed. I wanted to show that the whole venture of the making of the bomb was poisoned from the start, that it was a venture in which good men were committed to doing the wrong thing for the right reason, and that it was doomed to create untold havoc. Once again, that's Hakon Chevalier from his book, The Man Who Would Be God, mm, 1959. Uh, let's see, I'm looking at my own essay here. Uh, the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, right, I wrote, yes, the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer has all the ingredients of a Greek tragedy. Pride goeth before a fall, so do arrogance, ambition, romanticism, narcissism, and the American dream. Uh, there was a 1982 production of uh, The Follies of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Something back in those days was called The American Playhouse on PBS. Spring, right, spring 1982. Sam Waterston and uh, Jana Sheldon played uh, Oppie and his wife Kitty. In spite of criticism about its veracity, the show, I think, I believed, was an artistic triumph, uh, a coming of age for a world soaked in post-atomic angst. Now, it was a play, uh, that is, it was uh, not fiction. It was, what are we calling these things now? Docudramas? Okay. Uh, it shouldn't be confused with a pertinent documentary, uh, The Day After Trinity. I think that's the one I would select if I were teaching a high school class or any class, The Day After Trinity. I think uh, that documentary would look well alongside of the uh, the old, the 1982 uh, show with Sam Waterston. Now, Oppenheimer, the man who headed the wartime research project at Los Alamos, was essentially a sweet, brilliant guy. His fall from grace was, if not Faustian, at least American, what the script glosses over is that in 1943, in order to get his security clearance, Oppenheimer <laughs> lied through his teeth, sold out his friends on the left. The friend he betrayed, Hekan Chevalier, says that he was insecure. Oppenheimer was born in 1904. He belonged to a precarious Jewish elite. Chevalier believes he acted out of fear. In the end, Oppie, as his friends called him, 
didn't so much go to the devil as to that oblivion reserved for the terminally naive. As his alcoholic wife Kitty indicates in the play, his is the saint's script. He courts crucifixion. Mm -hmm. It's that Greek thing. For some reason I think of Oscar Wilde, but Oscar wasn't dealing with uh, the apocalypse. Anyway, Oppenheimer's tragic flaw was his ability or his inability to imagine fully the long-range consequences of his actions. Of course, I think he must have known he wasn't inventing penicillin. Like Oedipus Rex in the Greek tragedy, he was blinded by ambition and desire. And like Oedipus, when his eyes were opened, he put out his own light. His drama is the result of wrong choices made during a time when the furious fight against fascism obsessed our nation. Now, as a college student back in 1954, it was, I saw a film documentary of Oppenheimer. It was not part of the curriculum. It was not required. Uh, it was brought into our class by the head of the drama department at Mills College, Art Lauterer. Art seemed sad that there was such a small, disinterested audience, perhaps a dozen students. Uh, he tried to make us grasp the level of apathy in which we existed then in 1954. He told us Oppenheimer was a broken-hearted man trying to reach people to make them understand the enormity of the tragedy brought into the world by the megabomb. The world is, well, <laughs> the world is in much the same shape today, I think. Anyway, I haven't seen that film. Uh, I haven't seen it since 1954, and I have no knowledge of where it's available. Or if it has even been preserved, uh, it shows Oppenheimer speaking directly into the camera for perhaps 40 minutes. It's just a monologue. His despair is genuine. He weeps. His suffering is apparent on several levels. He's a physical wreck. Uh, his depth of expression is still with me after all these years. Uh, it's incredible. Um, towards the end of the film, through his tears, he made a plea for what he termed, this is a quote, affection between governments, unquote. I'm going to repeat that. He was pleading for affection between governments. <laughs> I saw him as a living ghost. Uh, it was 13 years before his death. Uh, his friend Chevalier writes of him, he had a peculiarly haunting look, impossible to describe, but which one associates with a person who has been through a searing ordeal one who has pulled up stakes and gone over to the other side and then come back. Okay. Uh, seems to me, from where I sit nowadays, that would make Oppenheimer a kind of shaman. 
at any rate, a teacher. My first glimpse of Oppenheimer uh, when I was a student was offset by what I learned later. Uh, I would argue that he had crushed consciousness, um, or whatever we call it this year. He had the awareness of a heroic figure in mythology, someone who has descended to the underworld and embraces his darker self and comes back to tell us about it. But Oppenheimer's tragedy is scarcely his own because he took us with him. Now, from a more jaded point of view, Oppenheimer was to the saint what Willie Loman was to the salesman. You remember Arthur Miller's play Death of a Salesman written in the 50s. Willie was liked, but not well-liked. Oppenheimer was a brilliant theoretical physicist, but he was no Einstein. He was not a creative genius, simply a high-tech scientist who had to settle for being a star. There is an article in the June 1982 issue of Mother Jones, written by Hugh Drummond, M.D., uh, Drummond writes that Oppenheimer's, this is a quote, his narcissism had a strange and protean quality. At Los Alamos, running his hand along the brim of his pork pie hat like John Wayne, he commanded the greatest single collection of advanced scientists the world had ever known. Later, he pronounced, quote, we physicists have known sin, unquote. Still later, when he was persecuted by Joe McCarthy, stripped of his security clearance, he looked, he looked for all the world like Jesus Christ on the cross. What I found evil about Oppenheimer was not his Faustian genius. It was not just his narcissism. It was that his narcissism was a stranger to him. Now, that's Hugh Drummond speaking, not me. I don't know whether Oppenheimer was evil. Said Hannah Arendt always said that evil, the quality of evil was its, that it was banal. Uh, I like the statement by his old friend, the one he may have betrayed, that uh, he was terminally naive, right? Yes, terminally naive. You know how it is. He thought because he was a good man, all things would come right in the end, right? Uh, not his Faustian genius, not just his narcissism, but that his narcissism was a stranger to him. I had a friend uh, back in the day, Matilda Moore. She was... Uh, one of the women who ran the grassroots newspaper in the 80s. She was a leftist. She remembers inviting Oppenheimer to dinner in 1938. <laughs> Berkeley in 1938. Gosh, I wish I'd been here then. Now, this is what she told me. Quote, she said he was such an attractive man. He liked a woman I knew, a waitress who was out on strike. He brought her roses and an algebra book. He loved mathematics. 
over dinner one night, she spoke to him of her concern over his involvement with the left. Excuse me, that's Matilda, not the waitress. Matilda was concerned because uh, Oppie was involved with the left. She had enough sense to know that was dangerous. She was an activist then, uh, as she was when I knew her in the 1970s. She was afraid that Oppenheimer might mislead the workers. He finished her sentences for her, saying that, oh yes, intellectuals sell out the workers. According to his friend Chevalier, Oppenheimer was always finishing other people's sentences. Now, I think he's becoming a legend of sorts since his death in 1967. There have been a number of efforts to evaluate or judge his life. I think his life is the least interesting aspect of his existence. <laughs> Whom the gods would destroy. <laughs> they give what they want, right? Uh, mm-hmm. They just uh, give you your desire and then see what happens. Uh, Oppenheimer was not a tyrant and not a torturer, uh, not an obvious villain. He used his mind part of it. Now, in this show back in 1982, Sam Waterston's Emmy Award-winning performance uh, does much to suggest Oppie's surface veneer, his superficiality, and his frailty. Still, some of it's hard to swallow. I suppose he could be called a fallen angel or a deaf angel. He was a man who definitely believed he was one of the better-known Hebrew prophets, a latter-day voice crying in the wilderness. Trouble was, it was his wilderness, handmade. Today, in our, uh, in our climate, people would call him a drama queen. Of course, this was not drama this was uh, our species, the threat to our species. Now, back in the day, Oppenheimer was the American dream. It was a nightmare of unprincipled achievement from a poetic guy who attended ethical culture school from the age of six to sixteen. Doubtless, he studied the classics and the Greek concept of hubris, right, and of nemesis, that's the goddess of comeuppance, right, uh, you'll get yours in the play. When Oppenheimer witnesses the bomb blast, uh, which follows the Trinity test, that was a test, remember, not the subsequent bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, in which he took part at the planning stage. So much for not knowing what the damn thing was really capable of. He quotes from the Bhagavad Gita after he witnesses the bomb blast. He says, uh, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Whoops, that's certainly accurate. But I think it smacks of the God complex, which all the moderns who are in love with the bomb seem to evidence when brought into its holy presence. In the beginning, there was Yahweh, the thunder God. 
Old Testament myth of fire and brimstone. Ah, the wheel has come full circle. Here we are, right back where we started from. The worship of death began in the caves. Oppenheimer's remark is vainglorious, to say the least. <laughs> Primate grandiosity gone mad. For my money, uh, I'll take his companion's remark. Uh, this is the remark that follows Oppie's, uh, <laughs> I am death nonsense. Uh, his companion says, Now we're all sons of bitches. <laughs> uh, once again, I took some excerpts from a review that I wrote back in 1982, and I find that things haven't changed much. I am waiting for the movie. I think Ed Harris might be a good option. No, I don't know. I can't think. I think maybe Sam Waterston should play it. Anyway, that was war. I have just a minute left, and I want to do something very, uh, very, very foolish. I'm just going to jump in. Yes, uh, make love, not war. I'm going to read you a few lines from, uh, some say the greatest love poem in, uh, in Western civilization. Just because I have this terrible, this terrible feeling, uh, after I, after I talk about Robert Oppenheimer. So, so very well loved. And still, uh, I can't forgive him. Anyway, in the Song of Solomon, we write, we read these wonderful lines. He says, uh, let's see, the poet says, Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave, the coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. I am my beloved's, his desire is toward me indeed. I'm going back to chapter one, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. I am black but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem. Look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. That's the one I would put in the Oppenheimer, in the Oppenheimer file, yes. His own vineyard he did not keep. Anyway, I'll give you a couple more lines of Solomon before I go off the air. Uh, Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest. <laughs> my beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphor in the vineyards. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair, thou hast 
dove's eyes. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes. And those grapes <laughs> have made a strange, strange wine. The wine of the 21st century. This has been Jennifer Stone uh, with Stone's Throw. I will be back on the air again next Tuesday. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Boys, there's your picture. Drop the I'm listening to Upfront. Thank you for your wonderful show. I just love Tom Mussolini. The Booth by the Bay is my favorite show. And I love him and I just listen to him every Saturday. Brother Kay, it was the best music I've ever heard. That was the best reggae show. I, I got a total healing off that. That was great. Thank you for the hour special of Twitwit Radio. It's most enjoyable. But I just listened to education today, and it's just such a wonderful program. Packed so much in that half hour. Also, I put in Voices in the Middle East, which is one of my favorite programs. Thank you so much, and thank you for everybody's good work. I'm bound to thank you for it. Thanks for making KPFA your station. Please continue your support by making a donation at kpfa.org. And thank you for your support.